The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was relationships, and Global Discipleship Initiative hosted a track called Turning Your Church into a Disciple-Making Mission. Greg Ogden facilitated this track for their team, and he has provided a quick one-page summary of how their organization advises people to start what they call micro-discipleship groups. They spell it all out in just one page, and that one-page PDF is available for download through discipleship.org global. That's discipleship.org global. Now here's today's track session from Global Discipleship Initiative. My name is Greg Ogden, and I'm partnering here with Ralph Rittenhouse. Just to give you a little brief bio uh, about me, I was uh, for 38 years in pastoral ministry. Uh, five of those, I was uh, director of the Doctor of Ministry program at Fuller Seminary, so I had a chance to do the academic thing for for a period of time. But my first love was the church, so I needed to get back in the church. But have been focused on this area of intentional disciple making for quite some time, and you may have to be familiar some of my writings that are on display in the back of the room here. Um, Ralph and I connected uh, a few years back when he took his church, Camarillo Community Church, and followed the pattern that I had suggested to follow to see your church transformed in a disciple-making congregation. He'll tell you about that and that journey today. And uh, because of our interaction, we hooked up and formed Global Discipleship Initiative. You can see on your front page, your outline, some of our uh, mission and core values that uh, are sprinkled throughout the outline uh, that we will cover. So in this what a disciple-making church uh, looks like, that's the place to begin. But a uh, little four, couple other things about me. Uh, married to my wife, Lily, uh, for 49 years. You can see that uh, I definitely married up in terms of um, married this beautiful young lady from uh, Uh, my wife was born in Shanghai. So we have uh, one daughter. Her husband is also a, a, a pediatrician with an infectious disease specialist. But I say the most important thing about them is not them. What is? Grandchildren, right? How many grandparents in the room? Okay. Do you have the best grandkids in all the world? Do you not? Yes. Uh, only second to ours. Um, so there's Claire and Dylan. It's a little bit, you know, faded there, but uh, Claire's 11, Dylan's 9, and then there's our little family. You can see my daughter on the left and our jump into our content. I'm Ralph Rittenhouse and I um, was pastoring in Southern California for 32 years and, and retired three years ago as Greg and I formed uh, Global Discipleship Initiative and uh, he brings me along because I'm Exhibit A. Uh, he wrote it up, he said this is how you do it and I, uh, I was looking for something that would work in discipleship in our church and I found his stuff and I said okay let's try this thing. So we did an experiment, we didn't tell anybody we were going to do it but we did it. 
and it just began. It took off. It revolutionized the church. It just, it just and I'll give you more details later on. But I, let me introduce um, my wife to you. This is Jackie up here, and she's a. She's not with me this week. She wasn't with me last week when I was in Romania. Uh, she'd rather stay home and uh, with the grandkids and stuff like that. But she's uh, she's a, a pianist, and she's a former uh, marriage and family therapist before we both retired. Uh, we've been married for 51 years, and uh, we pastored there in Southern California, and uh, we just ha have had a ball doing discipleship, and I'll give you more details about that as we move along. And who are these people? Oh, look at there. I got grandkids, too. I have six grandchildren, and five of them are boys, and one of them's a girl. And this little girl right here is the nurse, oncology nurse for children, children's oncology down in uh, Orlando. And her daddy, that's my son there. Uh, in the middle, and he is a he runs an office for uh, comp insurance in Los Angeles, and he uh, also, uh, for fun, coaches girls basketball at Westlake High School, and they have championships teams every year. Uh, this is the other part of the family, my daughter and her uh, three boys and husband. So she's a she's one girl with four boys, and she's somehow survived that. And she she does musicals in a, a high school in Ferndale, Washington. She leads she leads the drama music program there and my son-in-law is on the staff of a very large church in Bellingham uh, he's the go and be pastor they say come and see and then go and be so he's the go and be part of it which is you know, domestic missions as well as world missions kinds of stuff so uh, great family to be a part of and we we share a home up there uh, I bought a piece of property he said I'll build a home on there and we can all live in it so we did and so that's what we do and we're having a great time very good great so Ralph will uh, be filling in on the Camarillo Community Church journey uh, as a major part of our time together. But let me uh, just stop, start with that value statement that you see at the bottom of page, at the top of page two. And uh, this is our, our first value for, for GDI. And uh, it says, disciple making is the church's mission, not just one bullet point of the many things a church does. Uh, why would we put that as the first value uh, in our value statement? Why would that be right at the top of the list? And what I want you to do, just to interact with each other a little bit, there's two questions you see on the screen. Uh, what point is this value making? And uh, secondly, why would we even need to make this point <laughs> as a part of our first value? dangerous once we get you going but, uh, to try to get you refocused but uh, so just want to get those those wheels turning in terms of the whole emphasis on the centrality of disciple making uh, it's not one of the many bullet points and oftentimes we see even we've got a discipleship pastor they're taking care of discipleship in the church right we have that as a subset of everything else we do we're saying what it is what the church is all about. Uh, and everything that we do and everything that we are should be focused around what is it, how, what are we doing in terms of making disciples. Uh, so we have to make this point. Why do we have to make this point? Because? <laughs> because somehow we lose the focus. Uh, we just, it, it gets so diffuse in terms of the programs of the church and all the activities of the church that we lose that central uh, focus on, on disciple making. 
So I like to begin with what I call my duh moment uh, in ministry. Uh, one of my pastors was in the Silicon Valley, uh, early 1990s. Uh, we were all writing we're all writing mission statements in those days. I think Stephen Covey had put out his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and one of the chapters in that book is everyone should have their own personal mission statement. Maybe you even read that and wrote up your own personal mission statement. Well, businesses were writing mission statements. Churches were writing mission statements. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the mission statements that comes out of, of a business setting uh, is Starbucks' mission statement. Does this sound like Starbucks? Their mission is to inspire and nurture the human spirit, one person, one cup, and one neighborhood at a time. <laughs> How are they doing? <laughs> Pretty well, I would say, yeah. They're kind of following that out. You don't have to go too far to find a Starbucks. So I was passing this church. We did not have a mission statement in the Silicon Valley there. And uh, so it felt like, well, we should come up with one. Uh, so I appointed some elders to work with me. I actually drafted a few. And uh, let's figure out what our mission should be. So we spent a lot of time together. And it was definitely kind of the blind leading the blind. Uh, what's a mission statement supposed to look like when you're done? What is it supposed to capture? And, uh, and so we wrote a lot. In fact, I say we deforested much of Northern California with all the paper we used uh, that we presented in front of the elders of the church. And they kind of each time would kind of yaw, you know, hum and haw and yawn at the statements we put in front of them. But I think we wore them down. Uh, we finally stuck one in front of them and said, well, adopt that. And then I had my duh moment was, oh no. Jesus has done the work for us already. We don't need to write our own unique mission statement. What is it? Go into all the world and make disciples. Make disciples of all nations. Real clear. And it was like, what? The Lord saying to me in that moment, stay laser focused on this. Don't take your eye off of it. This is what you personally interview about, and this is what you're to lead your congregation in. And a lot of the materials that I have written have come out of, of that very, very focus. Uh, you have a quote from C.S. Lewis on your outline uh, that captures this so well. The church exists for no other purpose but to draw men to Christ, men and women, to make them little Christ. If they're not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. It is even doubtful, you know, whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose. Does that say it or what in terms of the, the focus of what we this should be should be about? So uh, writing a mission statement, disciples, keep laser focused on that. Uh, this is this is Jesus' ministry that we're to be about. Now, if we were to ask the question, well, what was Paul's mission statement? What was the Apostle Paul's mission statement? I've already sort of given you what I think is the mission statements in your outline uh, here, but I think if you if you turned and looked at Colossians chapter one verses twenty-eight and twenty-nine, uh, I think that captures. Paul's mission statement. It's different words than Jesus' mission statement, but it's really the same thing. Um, so if we look at Colossians chapter 1. Uh, let's try Colossians. So uh, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone in all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy that he powerfully inspires within me. 
I think it's the NIV. It says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil with all the energy he mightily inspires within me. Uh, uh, How do you know that this is Paul's mission? Because it's Paul's passion. Yeah. Verse 29 describes the energy behind verse 28. Uh, he says, for this I toil with all the energy that he inspires within me. The word energy there is actually twice in that, that text in the Greek language. You see it obviously there and with all the energy that he mightily energizes within me is the literal translation there. So Paul is saying what gets me up in the morning, what fuels my passion, what is my life is all about is to what present everyone mature in Christ. Um, I like the way uh, Dallas Willard captures this. One of his favorite phrases is, grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. You can't earn grace, but when grace comes, it translates into effort. It translates into passion, translates in, in, into work. And so what's the goal uh, of then this passion? Paul has. He said to present everyone, what? Mature in Christ. The Greek word there is teleos. It means complete, grown up, adult. Oftentimes Paul is chiding uh, his, his churches because they're what? Still infants. They are drink, drinking milk instead of eating meat. Uh, I want you to grow up in the faith. That's what my goal is uh, for you. Uh, that word teleos uh, means that uh, you are to live out the ultimate destiny of your life. The, teleos is the ultimate destiny of a thing. And so uh, if you were to say, what's the ultimate destiny of an acorn? It is to become an oak tree, right? The ultimate destiny of any of us is become fully grown in Christ. And Paul states this in a number of ways, a number of places. Uh, Galatians 4.19, uh, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So that's, that's the goal. Uh, one of my favorite statements about maturity is this one from John Stott. He says, you can become a Christian in a moment, but not a mature Christian. Uh, Christ can enter, cleanse, and forgive you in a matter of seconds, but it will take much longer for your character to be transformed and molded to his will. It takes only a few minutes for a bride and groom to be married, but in the rough and tumble of their home, it may take many years for two strong wills to be dovetailed into one. Any amens to that one? Amen. Yeah, okay. uh, are we still all still working on that? <laughs> I am. Uh, so when we receive Christ in a moment of commitment, we will lead to a lifetime of adjustment. Uh, in that whole maturity process, a lifetime of adjustment. We're light adjusting our lives to Christ's will in, in our life you know, throughout. So uh, the this, this center of that. So uh, where are we in this process? Um, Bill Hull, one of our speakers here in his book, The Disciple-Making Pastor, this line jumped out to me when I read this many years ago. He says that the crisis at the heart of the church is a crisis of product. Uh, what are we producing? Uh, do we even look at what we are producing in terms of the, the goal and focus of that? Uh, if you want something more organic, what fruit are we growing uh, in our in our just? And Max Dupree says that the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. Um, so we're asking the question, well, how are we doing in disciple making in our churches? Yeah, it's a hard thing to, to take a look at the reality uh, in, in our own church settings. Uh, Bill Hyatt Bill Hybels uh, has said, facts are your friends. Well, sometimes we don't want to look at facts in terms of what, uh, what that looks like in, in our, our lives and ministry. 
Um, there was a Christianity Today article that caught my attention some years ago. And uh, the front story cover uh, was, uh, does child sponsorship work? And I thought, well, that should be an interesting uh, article. Um, we, my wife and I sponsor three children. I, it might be a good thing to know whether child sponsorship actually lifts kids out of poverty and makes their life better. And the article was written by Dr. Bruce Weidick, who is a professor of economics and international studies at the University of, of San Francisco. And he said, people oftentimes ask me the question, well, what can an ordinary person like me do to help somebody who is poor? And he said, my knee-jerk reaction was always say, to say, well, sponsor a child. And then he realized, as an economics professor, he had never really studied whether any of these ministries actually are effective at doing what they say they are going to do. So he thought, this would be a great PhD project for one of his students. And so he, he went about finding somebody who could uh, take this on as a project. He finally found a, a young lady who would take it on. And she then began to approach these various organizations that has child sponsorship, like World Vision, Compassion International, those kinds of things. And it was very interesting. What do you think their response was in terms of participation in a study of their ministries to see if they were effective? They did not want to be studied. And I know when I read that, I said, I, I frankly was just angry. World vision, you don't want to be studied <laughs> to see whether what you're doing is effective or not. I'm sponsoring a child. I've been doing this since the 70s. You know? And uh, she did find one organization that finally conceded uh, that they would participate uh, in this study under one condition. What do you think that was? Anonymity. Anonymity. You can't tell anybody about it. Until they found out that they're, what they were doing was actually effective. <laughs> oh, now you can tell everybody about it. <laughs> and then I thought to myself, well, let's put it down on a personal level. Would I want to be studied? You know, if somebody comes to me with the truth about me, uh, what's my response to that? Yeah. If somebody said, do you want to know the truth? you want me to lie and tell you something you want to hear? Uh, everything in my, inside of me says, lie and tell me something I want to hear. But we need to initially just take a look at ourselves. And so one of the ways to do this, and I'm going to ask you to do some discussion about this as well. So you see this on your notes in the middle of page two. Um, a couple of things came to my mind in terms of just a uh, way to kind of get an assessment of our own churches of how we are doing in terms of disciple making. So imagine uh, Sunday morning, um, you as a pastor or one of the pastors of the church approaches you or somebody else in, in the congregation and they have Joe in hand here or Jane and Joe or Jane has just become a, a believer uh, and the pastor wants to find somebody that will walk alongside them over the next year to help them grow in their faith and not only help them grow in their faith but equip them so that they can disciple others as well. So what do you think the average church member would be, response would be if they were approached on the patio on Sunday morning, uh, pastor has Joe in hand, Jane in hand, and uh, says, would you consider walking alongside 
George Ann here for the next year and grow as a disciple of Christ and then equip them because your job is not done until they can disciple others. Dan, may you break in again? So, if that uh, opportunity was presented to an average church member, what percentage of people do you think would say, yeah, great, I can do that? Uh, two percent? Two, okay. Four percent? Eight percent? Maybe you have a church that's 25 percent. Anybody have a church that's 25 percent here? Okay. Good. Where you have four members of your church? <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> great. So that's that's great. You get up here and teach this workshop. That'd be great. Um, so yeah, I think we would probably say very few would be equipped and feel comfortable and confident and know what to do with somebody over over that period of time. So let's change the scenario a bit. Uh, so you have a, a new person coming into your church. They are evidently excited about their faith. Um, they are kind of poking around to trying to find out what their opportunities are in this church for helping them grow and develop in their faith. So maybe they approach one of the members of the staff, pastor of the church, staff members on Sunday morning, and they say, I'm new to this church. I'm excited about my faith. Um, I want to I grow as a disciple of Christ, and I, I want to be also equipped uh, to be able to walk. What's your plan here for that? Okay, just a conversation. How many would you have you could give an answer to that question that we have a plan? Okay, can you tell us what that is? Just a couple of people. You know, just yeah, go ahead. Uh, you know, the very first thing we begin to teach is you know the goal is to know God. Okay. That's the bullseye of the Christian faith. Right. And then we lead into attitude uh, because ultimately attitude drives. Uh, everything behind the person wanting to get to know God. Okay. We then walk them through, you know, just uh, several other foundational truths. Okay. How to uh, how to understand they've been made right with God. Right. Their identity. Mm-hmm. Great. So and, you, you know, thought out content. Prayer. Uh, what's the, the context? Word. What's the context for the content? The content. Well, we're spending time with these people. This this is a relational. Contra- we try to make it as yeah. relational as yeah. possible. Okay. All right. Okay. So okay. we encourage going fishing, camping, <laughs> yeah. Okay. hiking. Yeah. Some natural kind of settings. Settings to be with people. But, but ultimately, that is the goal that we're trying to, to help a person. We have a plan. Yeah. We have a plan. Good. Great. Wonderful. Yeah. We have a uh, team of disciple makers. We're trying to multiply those. And uh, so we would link that person with a disciple maker, most likely one-on-one. Okay. And uh, we're, we're primarily using Operation Timothy. Okay. Uh, so you have, as a, our curriculum. have a curriculum. So, uh, and our hope is to go through that, you know, obviously the curriculum and the right. life. Okay. Uh, life to life type thing. Right. And then uh, uh, to develop a disciple maker uh, out of that person. Great. Good. All right. One other thought here. Yes. Thank you. I take him through your book. I'm not that serious. I would take him through the Bible through essentials because I've done that before and it's been very fruitful. Good. Thank you. Uh, We can talk afterwards. (laughs) Back there, sell some books. But uh, no, it's great, great to hear that. Thank you very much. 
Uh, I was. Uh, I put that question out before a presbytery gathering. There was a new presbytery that was meeting. I was the, the resource for the presbytery gathering back in February in Sacramento area. This is the first meeting of a new presbytery, 30 churches represented in this aggregate of uh, area. And I, I, I put the same challenge uh, before them that I just put before you. And uh, when I said, you know, how many of you would have a plan for how to make disciples? They laughed out loud back to me, like, are you kidding? Now, that had, I had been preceded by the executive presbyter describing this 30 new churches, how excited they were to be together, and they have a five-year plan to double the number of churches in the presbytery. And, you know, one of the, the values of being a guest speaker is they don't, you don't care whether they ask you back or not. Uh, and so I said, so you want to double the number of churches in the next five years that have no idea of how to make disciples. Mm -hmm. Really? Is that what you want to do? <laughs> so that was my, my challenge to them. Ralph, come on up and uh, share with us uh, this. So th this is kind of our overall frame that we're working off of. Some of you who have uh, seen Jim Putnam. Uh, material you may recognize this in some fashion or another because we think this is the kind of key components uh, to a disciple making strategy. Uh, we'll look at a relational network, relational environment as we go forward in the next session, actually next two sessions, the role of an intentional leader. So we've got the relational environments, the car, intentional leaders, the driver, the reproducible process is the GPS or the curriculum. Uh, and then, but we want to start here, what, what's the successful journey look like and how we get there? So let's begin with the end in mind and get a picture of that and then we're going to back into the next sessions to these components. Uh, that lead to that successful journey. Well, I'll tell you how we kind of got there. I went to Camarillo Community Church in 1983. Camarillo, Camarillo is uh, about uh, an hour north of LAX going up the coast. Uh, it's right in between Thousand Oaks and Ventura and in Santa Barbara in that little chain up there. It's a great area. In fact, uh, National Geographic said it's one of the best places on the planet to live as far as climate is concerned. It's always nice in Camarillo. And it is. It is it's a beautiful place. And we went there and uh, we... I had uh, finished up, I had spent 14 years on Campus Crusade staff, um, had a ball there and learning how to do discipleship and evangelism and then I, and I felt God calling me back to a church so I finished up my graduate work and I submitted my resume and for whatever reason they asked me to come and, and it was a tiny little uh, group of people, less than a hundred, no building or anything but we were gonna, we were gonna make our dent if we could. Uh, and we began to. We, we had some evangelistic events, we brought in some NFL football players and had a men's breakfast on a Sunday morning and saw a bunch of decisions for Christ and we were on our way and we were we started seeing all kinds of responses to the kinds of things that we were doing and and we built our first building we got some property we built our first building seats about would seat about 300 max I mean wall-to-wall -wall kind of stuff and we we had this we had two services the second Sunday we were in the building because we didn't have enough room and it continued to grow and we uh, we finally got to a point we had four services in there and they said we got to build another building so we did we had the property to do it so we built a thousand seat auditorium
program, and it had all the bells and whistles. It had the the, you know, the screens and the mu and everything, and we had a music program, we had a youth program, we had women's programs. We, we were we were what. I thought was the measure of a successful church. It's kind of like an NFL franchise, you know? You got a good show on Sunday, you got a uh, big stadium, so everybody comes, you got lots of people showing up, and you got the budget so that when the numbers balance out, you're, you're there, you're a success. <laughs> then Willow Creek did this internal survey that all of you are probably familiar with, and they, they were shocked by the results of theirs, and so everybody started doing them. We decided we'd do ours as well, because we'd follow the Rick Warren uh, strategy and the Bill Heibel, we followed everybody, you know, we were just doing it the way church was taught to be done at that point. I didn't know. I was just, you know, I, I went to school like everybody else. And you do it like the, guy, the guys that are big and successful are doing it, right? So that's what we were trying to do. And some of you call this a track, some people call this a traction model, and it probably was. You know, we did whatever we could to get the people in. Uh, we didn't compromise the gospel, uh, but we just tried to package it so that it would be palatable and people would enjoy coming to church. And But then we did our internal study. And they said, well, we like the music, we like the buildings, we like somebody, we like the preaching. And you know, and but the thing that was short, where we came up short, was discipleship. People knew they were not growing. They get to a certain point, they plateau out, and they don't grow anymore. Mm -hmm. And then they start looking around. Where, where's the other church? We'll try this church over here. So they go to another church, and so you have a back door that's as wide as your front door, and you can't you stop making headway. And that's kind of where we were. You know, at our peak, we're about a thousand people, and so we thought we were. You know, we were there uh, on and on our way to you know whatever was next and but then we kind of hit this wall and we weren't going anywhere and we knew that and we were frustrated by it and I spent lots of time in prayer about it and I'm coming back for some, probably a, one of these seminars you know <laughs> church growing up I, I come back and I'm on a plane and I'm reading an article by John Ortberg about discipleship in leadership journal and he's talking about guys and he mentions Greg Ogden and the name was familiar but I never read any of his stuff so when I got off the plane I googled Greg Ogden and I found transforming discipleship you know and that's and so I got his I, I ordered a copy of it immediately and I started to read it and I thought this this sounds good this sounds good I'll, I'll order a few more copies and I did I ordered three more copies and gave one to Jim and one to Daryl and one to Bev and I read it and I said now when you finish reading this next week we're gonna get together and talk about this and we did and we got together and we decided we're gonna try an experiment we're not going to tell anybody because, you know, experiments are the kind of thing that if it doesn't work, nobody cares, right? So we're just, it's an experiment. I'm going to start a group. You start a group. You, you know, all of us, all four of us start a group. Now, the thing that's significant about, unique about what Greg is encouraging is, we were, it, it says, do discipleship in gender-specific quads. You know, fours, threes or fours, but fours is, we found is the ideal number for us. And so we did. I got my four guys, I my three guys, the, Jim got his, Daryl got his, and Bev got hers, and we started doing. We weren't probably four weeks in, and, and we kept getting together, the four of us, because we were all staff anyway, so we, we had to get together anyhow. But we, we compared notes, and we realized something's happening here. This thing is beginning to make a dent. It was, it was helping us. You know, and, and so, uh, but it, it continued on and, and it just got more and more exciting for us. And then at the end of a year, because it's built into the curriculum, this multiplication part, my, four, my three guys went out and got three more guys because we finished and they got three more guys. And my group of four became 16. And so did Daryl's and so did Jim's and so did Bev's. 
And in one year, you know, this thing had started to multiply. The next year, it did the same thing. It multiplied again, and it just, and all of a sudden, it's, we're just seeing, we're seeing some exciting stuff going on here now. And I'll get to a section later on where we'll talk about some of the serendipity, some of the benefits of all of this, and what it does to your church. But uh, we began to see, you know, God doing some phenomenal things. Then we had, a, we had one of our missionaries come home, and she, she wandered into Panera Bread on a Wednesday morning when I'm having my quad. And uh, she was coming to say thank you for, you know, investing in our ministry. And she was, you know, she had an orphanage over in Romania that she had for orphan kids and they, you know, during the summers and stuff. And she had a camp and, you know, they, so, um, then one of my guys says to Debbie, says, Debbie, you need to do this over there. Do what? Discipleship. You need to do discipleship. She sat down, and before the meeting was over, we'd come up with a three-part strategy for launching something like this in Romania. First, we'll get it translated, because you've got to have it in our language. Then we'll get some pastors, because she'd been over there 20 years. She knew pastors, so she would get, get her to vet them somehow, and we'd get the pastors to come over, and i get Dr. Greg to come down and help us teach it, and we'll show these guys how to do it, send them back, see what happens. Well, my assistant got on the phone the next day to uh, Ivy Press and says, <clears throat> you know, we'd like to translate into Romanian. She, and the gal said, you're too late. Somebody did that last year. <laughs> oh, really? Who was it? Well, there were a bunch of, bunch of Bible smugglers over there that when the Iron Curtain came down, they became a publishing house. And so, well, we got a phone number. We called them on the phone and said, why did you do it? Well, we saw it in a magazine. We didn't have anything like that, so we translated it. Is anybody using it? No. <laughs> so that was God saying, okay, I've done the first part, I go on to the second part. So we gave, we gave copies of it to Debbie and said, go show this to some pastors. Tell them that, you know, I mean, don't tell them that there's a church going to bring them over to see Disneyland. We don't want them, you know, just tell them that, you see what they like. It. And that'll, you know, and so the pastors came back, several of them, um, back 13, said, we, we like it. How can we get some more of this? How can we learn how to use it? And she said, well, there's this crazy church in Southern California. It'll fly you over. They'll, they'll, they'll teach you how to use it if you're interested. And so these guys came, and we, you know, they, we we were just excited as we could be. Uh, we loved on them like we had them for ten days. We loved on them like crazy. We bought them all new suits. We did, you know, we, and they slept in our beds and ate our food, and you know, and and, and I went to the church because when we planned this thing, I said. It's not a budgeted item, folks, and we're going to have these guys come over, and it's going to cost us, plane tickets and all, it's going to cost us about $45,000. And in two Sundays, all the money was there. I mean, because these were people now who had done discipleship, and they knew what this was, might mean. Because we, we said, you know, there's nothing like this in Romania. You know, you come here, and there's 20 organizations working, but nobody working over there. You know, so uh, we thought, you know, what this has great potential. Well, the, the guys came, and we loved on them. We taught them stuff, and, you know, one of the guys, because they're not, they weren't about 20 years from communism. They, they were suspicious of everybody, you know. You don't trust anybody, you know. So mm -hmm. then some of them just, you know, they, it took half a week before they finally, the, the arms came down, and they began to open up to us and everything. And one of the things that really got to them, and you'll see some of it in a minute, uh, we had some of our people come up and, and share their testimonies who were in the groups you know and and they would you know say how this had impacted their lives and so on and and you know they they you know, a seminary professor and a pastor you know okay you expect you know but we're selling this stuff right so but here are people that are using it and they were excited about it and one little lady we love Jane Bacon because she's 90 years old and said I can do it you can do it 
was so fun, and 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 they went back enthused about it. And in, in a year and a half, and we were in Romania teaching how to do it again because it, uh, they were seeing so much results over there. Well. <clears throat> All in all, uh, it transformed our church. And I'll give you some of those characteristics later as we go through this session. And by the way, um, we're, we're, we got five different seminars in these sections. And I know some of you may want to go and check somebody else's out. And that's fine. I understand that there are a lot of organizations that have a lot of good stuff. And, but we want to show you how this works and, and give you as full a picture as we can. So if you can come back, you'll get more of it each time you come back. Okay. Uh, so what we want you to do now is hopefully you were listening carefully to what Ralph Sarah shared in that spot. Um, take a couple moments now. We'll have some questions. Yeah. It was just that was worried. Oh. Somebody said oh. on that and we're Thank breaking. You. Okay. Uh, whatever that was. Um, so, okay. So jot down a couple notes from what you heard Ralph say um, that struck you. You know what 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 uh, what made this work in a sense in in Camarillo. Um, what were some of the key elements there? Uh, so we'll take a, just a moment, of, a minute of silence or so for you to capture some thoughts. Um, then um, I think we'll ask you to kind of feedback some of those to us as a group, and then I want you to have some time to ask Ralph some questions as well. Okay, what, do you th what, what, what are some thoughts come to your mind from what you've heard so far? Yes, sir. Two things, a desire to produce disciples who make disciples and a very critical part that Dr. Hogden provided content for the discipleship process. Content is, is obviously critical. You want to get, you, you want to have good content. That's your, that's your road map. Uh, for where you're going to go. So that's that's critical, and that's what he provides. If you've looked at the content that we used, anybody got a book? Uh, wave a book back there. Uh, Claudia, wave a book. <laughs> the Cybership Essentials book. This is the workbook that, that Dr. Ogden put together, and it's, it's Christianity 101. I mean, it's just everything you need, a, a, a disciple needs to know. And so you're taking them through just the basic essentials uh, that that you need. And if you get a chance to look at that, and we'll talk about it a little more, but you'll see that. So yeah, content's critical. Content's critical. Well, the other, you said a second thing. That was the second thing. The first was that you, you had the desire, you saw the need yeah, for disciples. And, not only would be disciples, but be able to yeah. And I think all of you are here at this conference because you already see that. You know, it's something you want. You, you know that's necessary or needed. And uh, this, this was right there hitting that one on the head. Excuse me? A little louder. louder. Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. Keep keep telling us that, Claudia. Back in the corner. Yes. For a certain standard, so they were ready to take on their own people. Right. Six months, twelve months. Eight. Twelve months usually, and it's it's twenty-five lessons in the book, and if you do a lesson a week, uh, then it's twenty-five weeks. That's a half a year. Not but I've, I've I've never done that, and I've never seen anybody do it that fast. Uh, uh, we usually spend about two, two, two weeks on a lesson, and that's typical. We had one of our guys, Jim, who got real, they, they said they were the deeper ones. And it took them a year and a half to get through. Okay, that's fine. Um, but, it, you know, so it, it takes approximately a year. Well, let, me, let me add to that, because it's all about the relationship. It's not about driving yourself through the curriculum. 
It's about going through at a pace that the people can absorb it. Yes. Uh, because you're dealing with personal stuff in people's lives. The idea of the groups of three or four, and we'll go through the profile there in a moment, is you're trying to create an honest, open environment. Yeah. The theory here is that it's only when the Word of God is processed in a personal way mm -hmm. that it will actually impact your life. We have lots of Bible studies that people go to for information, mm -hmm. but very few contexts for transformation. And that openness, honesty uh, about what's really going on in your life is a very important part of making sure it's fertile soil so the seed can see, sink in. I couldn't believe how the uh, acquisition of the truths in life rose in these groups. You know, I, I preached regularly. I preached hard. I spent 20 hours in prep every week trying to get a, a feast out there for our people to come and eat and be fed and this kind of stuff. And uh, they walk away and they say, good job, Pastor, really enjoyed the sermon. And I say, what did you enjoy? And they look at you kind of blank and they can't remember a thing. By Thursday, I can't remember. So, you know, I mean, you just it just doesn't stick. But when you go to a group like this and you've done your homework and you've done your homework, I did my homework and we share what we, you're speaking into my life, you're speaking and we're speaking into each other's lives and you hear yourself sharing these doctrines of the faith. It's your mouth, it's your voice you're hearing. It sticks, it sticks, and boy, the acquisition, I mean, the understanding just went up way, way up. People have been in church for a long time and still didn't get basic truths. I hope they, I, I thought they would, they didn't. We took some surveys, they didn't get it, you know? So, yeah, question. So why, why didn't you do this from the very beginning? When I first went there in 1983, because I was doing church like everybody else, I guess. I, I, my dad's a pastor, you know. I saw it done. I know, you know. You you do the sermons, you do the music, you do all the youth, pro you do all the programming. Making disciples somehow has slipped way, way down. I went to a, I went to a um, our denomination who cons considers themselves very, very good at planting churches. They're one of the best. They've got they they plant churches well, and they take these young seminarians and they you know and they tell them how to get to, you know, the teams together and raise their money and get this thing launched with the big thing on Easter Sunday, you know, kind of stuff. And, I went to a time when we, our, our particular portion of that denomination was going over those things and, um, and I listened to them and I got frustrated because they were talking about all these things you need to do and discipleship was a bullet point way down at the bottom of the list. And I just said, wait a minute. I, inside I said, I didn't say it out loud. I just, I didn't know what to say. I, I, I'd said the wrong thing. <laughs> uh, I, it's not a bullet point. It's a target. Mm -hmm. It's not a bullet point. It's the target. And we can't keep making it a bullet point. This is what we're supposed to be about. So, yes, question. Recruiting. All right, so you finish your year or year and a half. How do you find the people? How do you find the next generation? How do you vet them? How do you, how do you vet them? Uh, I take the book. I say, read the first 14 pages, and if you, and, if, and then I get together with you for coffee. And basically, the first 14 pages of the book describes exactly the whole process very well. And usually, the people that are the right ones say, I'm in. I'm in. I, I, I sat down with one guy who's in one of my groups now. And I, I sat down, I'd never met him before. And somebody introduced me, we had we had breakfast together, I shared with him what we're doing, and I said, okay, I want you to pray about it. He said, I'm in, I'm in. I mean, this guy, you know, there are lots of believers that are ready. They know this, and if you can, if you share it with them and they get the, they get the picture, they're in. Yes, sir. 
are all of these quads meeting outside the church or Good do question. they meet in the church as well? Uh, yes. <laughs> outside, inside, my, I met it. Pernera Bread, I met it. You know, uh, Italian restaurant, we, we met at a Mexican restaurant, we meet in homes, we meet in a park, you meet in a church, you know, um, yeah, all over, anywhere, just find a place you can sit down together. The, the major qualifier there is a place that's a safe environment. Because if you're trying to develop trust, uh, you're trying to make sure you have sort of enough privacy that people are not listening in. Oh, Got the recording here. Uh, <laughs> you're right. Uh, so, safe space. Um, so, my I had a quad that was met Tuesday. We met at Starbucks, but not inside Starbucks. We met at a table outside Starbucks. I mean, it's California. You can meet outside. Um, so, but that was that was still a safe space um, to 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 be in and be able to share what was going on in our life. So, um, I've met in boardrooms of businesses, um, churches, living rooms, you know, any of those places. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I had two uh, pastors in town find out that I was doing this and, and they wanted to learn how to do it. Yeah. And I said, okay, we'll get one more and we're in a group. We got a group, okay? Mm -hmm. And so we, I took them through it. And uh, here are young pastors that don't ha know how to... I was... I, I still remember at a work day in our church and I'm out trimming bushes or something and one a young engineer who's just graduated from Colorado State University and gone out to Point Magoo where he's working for the government out there building rockets and he He's, uh, he's in our church, and he comes up to me and says, Ralph, I'd like for you to disciple me. Hmm. Come on. <laughs> I did not know what to say. I did not know what to say. It wasn't until we started this thing that I, that I really had a, a plan to know what to do. I don't even remember what I said. <laughs> I just know I didn't do it. You know, he went through a quad later, but I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Question: how, how do you get over the? Uh, if you have churches established in small groups, because small groups has been so big. That's what we were doing. That's what we thought would do it. And and how do you translate that? Like, yes, small groups. But if you really want to go, here's where you want to go. How, yeah. How do you get that? And and what what do you do when you get pushback on that? Yeah. I'm in a church now where they've got a great small group program. And they've got lots of small groups, and but we're also doing this, and we're doing it stealth, and it's coming, you know, it's coming along. Uh, but in the group back in Cam in Camarilla, the church back there, we had small groups. That's the way we thought discipleship would take place. It wasn't. It, it's a great place to have fellowship. It's a great place to grow together, and you can get a certain amount of information trans, you know, transition. But you, it 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 stops short of changing your life the way Christ wants to do it. So uh, we began to launch these things and we just, my, qua, my, my, my small group that I was leading, after we got to, through certain amount of material, they said, uh, we want to do the discipleship stuff. I said, well, we can't do it because you got women and men in here. It won't work. They said, uh, women, we'll go in the kitchen and y'all can have it out. You men can stay out here and we want to do it. So eventually they decided to do it and we did it. And once we were through, they went out and got groups and that group disappeared. That small group disappeared. Now, that church still has small groups. My church I'm in now, we still have small groups. They have a purpose uh, that's very functional, very important. But these, this thing is what really began to make mature. Let me, let me, let me give a, a, a framework around some, some of the different spaces in the life of the church. So some of you may have come across Joseph Meyer's book, A Search to Belong. Uh, 
Apparently not, because I'm not seeing any uh, positive <laughs> responses there. But uh, he talks about four different spaces in the church. Public space, which is basically identifying with the public worship of the church. And somebody say, where, where church do you go to? Well, I go to XYZ church. I may not go beyond worship, but at least identify that level. Second, next level is social space. So where you're trying to find people of common interest or needs, uh, where you're connecting with each other. In larger churches, this usually equates to mid-sized communities. Adult Bible fellowships, you know, those kinds of things that uh, where you can find others that you can, you know, in a larger fishing pool um, connect with. Then you move to um, more private space, or excuse me, personal space. And that's where the traditional size small group fits in. It's kind of a, an initiation into community. So it's practicing the one another's of the faith, love one another, forgive one another, etc. Um, but it's not intimate space, and that's the, that's the fourth level of space. Uh, and that's what we're talking about here is intimate space um, and maybe that's a word that sounds has other overtones to it so maybe I should like have some other word but um, but that's where you can in a sense be naked space uh, with each other and that's what we're saying in our church in, in Chicago we talked about majoring in microgroups so that there was a direction that we were going. You know, we provided these other spaces, mid-sized communities, uh, small groups, but we majored in micro. Uh, the internal study of your church. Yes. Um, how did you approach this? Uh, okay, when we did our internal studies, our denomination was using the to retool. Retool, that's what it was called. Retool. And uh, that was Six week, six weekends with about 30 people. You do a survey of your church, and then you bring all the results to these 30 people that you've hand selected, and they do an analysis of it, of the data, and decide. And they've got a tool that kind of grades it all out, and they tell you where you're strong and where you're weak, and that kind of thing. So that's that's the study we used. Okay, and then this young lady here. Yes. So during the transition into discipleship, was there struggles um, like within the church, like making that yeah. transition from going to just doing church? Was there pushback kind of stuff? Smooth as could be. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't tell anybody, and we're you know we, we didn't tell anybody. We were just doing it. It's totally on the south. It was not. I. It was two two and a half years before it ever appeared in a bulletin or I said anything in the pulpit. Anybody knew anything about it yeah. except those that who had been invited. This is an important point, folks. Yeah. Underline this one. Because yeah. you don't make it a program where you tell everybody to come. You can't handle everybody. There's no way you can do this effectively in a mass kind of a way. So you start it with groups. And I've had pastors come to me and say, well, I'm going to preach it on Sunday morning. We're going to break up into groups and we're going to have everybody in a group. It, it doesn't work. It doesn't work because it's it's the relational life on life that makes this thing happen. And with and Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that. He was the greatest preacher in the world. And he didn't depend on preaching to make disciples. He spent 90% of his time with 12 guys. Why did he do that? He walked away from the crowds over and over again. I, almost any pastor in America is like me, man. 5,000 people came to hear me preach. What would I do? You know, besides take an offering, I would start, <laughs> I'd start a building program right there. You know, hey, he didn't do that. He walked away and he did it over and over again. He knew something that we've forgotten and that it's done life on life. And the way to reach the masses is to reach a few and reach them well. Question? For, forgive me, I, I came in late. You may have said this, but how are you guys defining discipleship? 
uh, life change into the c character of Christ. That, that, that's what I would say. And and I know that for, you know, one of the guys in my, <laughs> in one of my groups, he walked into the group first day and he said, okay, what's your favorite sin? <laughs> okay, let's get real, guys, you know. Uh, you do, and it doesn't take guys, uh, you know, I, I'm not in any girls groups, I don't know, but the guys get real pretty quick. There's not many places in the world they can get real. And when you're in a safe place like that and they feel comfortable, they get real quick. They start, people start turning over to their laptop computers and say, would you keep this for a couple weeks for me because I can't handle it. But it's not, it's not just about... Uh, character of Christ, which is, you know, the, uh, Paul prays for the Galatians that Christ be formed in them, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what we're uh, all about in terms of, obviously, the character qualities of the fruit of the Spirit that we want to see ha happen in people's lives and that, that work working itself out. So, in my book, Transforming Discipleship, I try to sketch out kind of the, or, uh, excuse me, uh, discipleship essentials, kind of four major blocks of things. Spiritual disciplines, grasp of the core doctrinal content of what Jesus did for us, what Jesus is going to do in us in terms of transformation, and what Jesus wants to do through us in terms of ministry. So we try to cover those those particular categories yeah. of that. But also, the idea is you're not a disciple until you are committed yourself to making disciples. So the whole idea is the reproduction is built into this this process uh, in terms of the value of that. And my job as a quad leader is not done until my guys are successfully leading quads and being and those quads are reproducing themselves. So I, I, I don't drop them, at, and this is another question that usually comes up, I don't drop them after the first year. You know, I, I, I still meet once a month or, you know, and I, st I go back to camp. I'm living in Washington now, but I, every time I go back to Camarillo, I get the Panera Bread. We go, we're meeting at Panera Bread with that first quad that met. So, you know, you, you don't, you, those are lifetime relationships. Yeah, I love that. Uh, and I love the multiplicative nature of this. Um, have you been able to find a way yet uh, to to measure the effectiveness of your process in terms of the reality of internal life change. And I'm asking that for personal reasons. Like, I don't want to go to another value system where we're going, where, well, it's multiplying. Mm -hmm. Right, so and that's effective. not. I love hearing one-off stories that are anecdotes about how meaningful the experience is. But in my own personal work, I take a businessman that's the poster child of all this stuff. They're meeting in groups, they're meeting in microgroups. They're uh, bringing accountability to each other. They're growing in the doctrines of the faith. They're doing all these things. And when I test him for his internal experience of the fruit of the Spirit, peace, joy, gentleness, patience, kindness. And where do you He's put going, a thermometer going, on that? Are you kidding? Have you seen the project? My <laughs> yeah. bonus structure is yep. built around over here. Not have peace in my life. I'm anxious all the time. Uh, yeah. But he's doing all the right stuff. Sure, yeah. sure. Have you found a, a tool yet to kind of help you know, are we moving the needle here, or do we need to keep kind of affecting the, the process? I think you're asking a critical question that you're going to have to answer for us. Because yeah. we'd like one. Yeah. We'd yeah. like one. And that's, that's a hard one to measure. How do you measure when the real change is taking place. I can I can get from the guys in my group as they're talking and they're talking about their their response to their children, their wives, and their as their their prayer requests and all these kinds of things. They're making progress, but how do you ultimately measure that out? I don't know if God I don't know, God may be the only one that knows. I don't know, but I would almost say that maybe not. I know everything needs to be measured in churches now. Everything does. Yeah. But if Jesus really took measurements of his own disciples, 
I won't want what you give up on that. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, really. You know, I, yeah, and yeah, that's hard yeah, to say. Yeah. But here, you know, I, I've done student ministry for 15 years. I'm transitioning into lead ministry stuff. And, you know, you see kids move or grow, and then you see adults come and go. And it's if you get so focused on measuring and you stop looking at doing your job, you know, I hate to say that, you know, and, and sometimes you're just supposed to still work. And maybe that's just me speaking out of what I'm thinking. I, I think a lot of this, I don't have a measurement tool like you're saying either, but a lot of this comes out in their interactive nature of the relationships that you're having together because you are, I say in these quads, you're bringing the totality of your life to this experience. You're bringing your work life, you're bringing your home life, you're bringing your, your parental life, you're bringing your value system, you're bringing your attitudes. Um, all that's under, in a, in a sense, fair game uh, in that in those kind of relations. If you're developing that kind of honest relationship, people are going to give you feedback mm -hmm. as to, yeah, we're talking about peace, but I don't see it in your life. Well, that is a measurement uh, tool. That's a measurement tool. Yeah. So that would be the only way I would say see this happens in terms of the I walked into the um, I walked into the emergency room at St. John's Hospital in, in, in Camarillo to see the chairman of our board of elders who had a heart event. He's in the emergency room. I walk in and they won't let me back to see him. And I said, I'm his pastor. You know, uh, usually they let me in. <laughs> he said, well, he made a list of the people that were allowed in, and you're not on it. <laughs> and I looked at the list. That was his quad. <laughs> he let his quad come, and his senior pastor's not on the list. <laughs> but then I realized, that's exactly what we're after. That's what we want. We want them ministering to each other, taking care of each other. I mean, that's the way the ministry should be given back to the people. That's the title of a book we yeah, ought some, to have. Some Somebody wrote that. <laughs> yes. You know, I, I can see the advantage of a quad. I can also see the advantage of one-on-one. -on -one. Yes. What What made you, Greg, go, or Ralph, you can answer this, go to the quad rather than the one-on-one? -on -one? Is there been something, was a defined thing that you said, you know, this is why I'm going this way? Yeah, that's actually will come up in one of our other sessions, but that's fine. Um, well, I had done the one-on-one -on -one discipling for many years because that was, in my mind, the definition of discipling. I think the imprint of navigators on my mindset was you have a one-to-one -one relationship. So I, you know, over the years had invested in people, but I was very frustrated with it, frankly. Um, yes, we'd have open relationships. We'd talk about all kinds of ways, the application of the faith, the different dimensions of our life, but I was not seeing that person empowered to disciple others. And part of it was I was kind of making up stuff as I went, so co cobbling together curriculum and topics and, you know, and all that. And talk about just kind of stumbling into things. I was writing, I was finishing my doctor minister degree at Fuller in the mid-80s. I had written a very rudimentary version of what later became Discipleship Essentials. And uh, so my mentor said, well, let, let's test this stuff out in some different arenas. Do the one-to-one -one discipling, do a group of 10, and let's do a group of three. And it was when I did that group of three that I, th I was very early on saying, oh my gosh, this the dynamic here is so much more alive. I would walk out of those times together, maybe walking in kind of tired, walking out, bouncing in terms of the you know sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit and the interaction. I said, there's something different about the nature of this relationship. Because it was in the one-to-one -one relationship, it tends to set up a hierarchy, a teacher-student kind of relationship. It creates dependency. Uh, and it, so as soon as you set that one-to-one -one dynamic up, 
you throw a pastor into that role because uh, people can't become like their pastors because they've had seminary education. It's very difficult to get beyond that to empower the, the next generation. As soon as you add a third person, and then of course we actually focus more on groups of four now, it changes it into an interactive dynamic uh, where the pastor is one of the persons in the group, not the focal point. It quickly moves out of that. Uh, and uh, you know, I refuse to be the Bible answer man in those groups either. So you know, put a quarter in and get an answer back. Um, so uh, it just changes uh, the whole dynamic of it. And that's, it becomes that, a rich, a rich time because you got you got three other people that are giving you the Holy Spirit will work through any of us in the room, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm not. I don't have any. You know. He, he didn't just speak to me, and so three other guys, they've done their homework, they've been praying, they've, been, they've come to the group, they, I'm always writing down stuff that's better than I am, you know, somebody's yeah. got a better, oh, I like that one, you know, so, and, and I've done lots of these groups, and I'm still learning them, so, yeah. Disciple making involves, you know, bringing someone who is outside of Christ into Christ. Right. Yeah. It also involves someone who is in Christ, maturing them in Christ. Right. Do you mix those kinds of environments, or do you try to separate and have, if you're going to have a quad, try to find people that you're trying to work with to bring them to yeah. belief, or do you just you keep them segregated? No, that's a great question because and and we've got one guy that's he's in a college town and he's he's in and he's got a lot of non-believers coming to the church because they, they really have an effective ministry to college students and they're pulling neophyte you know kids. That are just coming in uh, who if they know Christ they're just you know just barely in the door and they're putting them in with three other or three other very mature kids and they're seeing some great things happen there uh, we didn't we never tried that we always you know we were we were aiming targeting believers because our people you know our core people didn't weren't discipled yet and so we were trying to disciple the core so they could go out and disciple others and what we what we were I think uh, serendipity that we'll, we'll get more of these later on was that our evangelism went way up because the people in the quads have something to share. They're excited about their lives. Most church people are not even excited about what they you know what they're experiencing. You know, they might tell you something the pastor said, but they don't as far as their personal lives are concerned, there's not a lot going on. But these people in the group are having they're experiencing life change and so when somebody at work asks a question or whatever, they're right there. And they've got stuff in their brain and in their mouth because they've been saying it every week to the guys and they've been memorizing the verses and so they were they our evangel best evangelism was coming out of our quads. Yes. Uh, can you speak to how you spend all night in prayer? And so we, we tell everybody, you know, pray. Ask God to put people on your heart. Sounded like fast and pray. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. like. <laughs> yeah. We haven't you, got to the fast part yeah. yet. <laughs> but you pray and you ask God to put people on your heart. And that's what we tell our people to do. That's what we tell them to do. And as God puts people on your heart, then you go and sit down with them and you yeah. share what we're talking about and what this is doing in your life and invite them in. So primarily that way. Um, yes. I have two verses related to that. Okay. If, if, some, if you get the quarter four, six months in, three months in, one or two aren't being faithful, do you just cut them? Do you let the group cut them? Do you 
I had one group. I had one group met at Denny's, and one of the guys came in and said, "You know, I'm a grandparent. I'm raising my grandchildren because of my son's divorce and all this kind. Of, we're raising grand, and I got a job, and I'm and I'm I'm a company, and I got and I don't have time. Can I audit this?" That was this way. I can. I don't want to do the homework. I don't want to. Can I audit this? And I said, "Oh man, that's so bad. I got feeling compassion." You know. Well, let's go talk to the guys. I'd go talk to the guys. One of my guys says, "Ain't no way. If I'm doing this, you're doing this." <laughs> Next week he came with his homework done. <laughs> well, the second thing I want to ask. Well, let me let me comment on that first. Didn't so. feel, we didn't fully answer. So yeah, the way you start the groups is all important. Yes. So we begin with a covenantal relationship. So as you begin together, there's a, you know, in Discipleship Essentials, page 14, we'll go over that in a subsequent session. There is a five-point covenant that you're committing yourself to. And so you really want somebody to soberly decide uh, whether, whether they can do this or not. Uh, so I, I just had a new group start on, on Tuesday. Um, we walked through the covenant of my little book. And uh, so walked through the five points there and I said okay I want you to put in your own words what you just read and what you're committing yourself to so they each had to kind of articulate their own commitment level at this point and then we have a signing ceremony at the end of that and then in discipleship essentials there's a time to review and renew the covenant twice so you're going back to it after lesson 8 and lesson 16 um, so if you if you lay the foundations right there's a much less chance of the very thing you're talking about happening in terms of that curve. Second thing yeah. I want to ask for, for you or any pastor, fast forward three or four years, it's taking off, it's becoming the culture of the church. Do you have to, as leadership, cut other activities, other programs to make time for this? <laughs> it will, uh, this a lot of attrition will happen yeah. naturally. <laughs> yeah, I, we, somebody asked me that in a, in a session and said, did you have to cut everything, anything out of your church schedule? Because you got you know, you know, I said, yeah, and I thought about it first, and I thought, we canceled Christmas. <laughs> we canceled Christmas. I had, I, we, we do, we did this huge Christmas thing, you know, I mean, all the, you know, the flying angels, all the stuff, you know, and uh, that's the way, and people came, and we saw, you know, all these people checking cards at the end of the program, they made decisions, for, all this kind of stuff, and so we had gotten, we were just into it about two and a half, three years, I don't remember what it was, but I sat down with the gal who was in charge of doing all of that, and I said to her, uh, I got this great idea. It was this she, happens, July. she happens to be in the room here. She's so right in the back right now. This <laughs> is in July, and I was I was planning Christmas, and I had all this elaborate plan, and she just kind of looked at me, you know. And I finished it all and everything. She said, "Well, I'll get back to you." Okay. I'll pray about it. Okay. Next week she calls and she's got her husband with her. She wants to get together for lunch and she's got her husband with her and she's sitting there and she says, I don't think I can do this. I said, what do you mean you can't do this? Well, if we're serious about this discipleship, this, this Christmas thing is an all-skate. Everybody has to drop everything to put this thing on every year. I mean, it takes a hunk out of October, November, December. Uh, and discipleship just goes away. And she said, I've got a, a group, and I can't, I, can't, I can't do that to them. And I don't think you should do it either. She says to me, the pastor. <laughs> she didn't have a job after that. <laughs> Cheryl, you want to comment on that? Cheryl's the gal that did all these things. She does this amazing music. <laughs> 
Yeah, we canceled Christmas. We didn't do Christmas that year. You know, we had a mini program kind of a thing, but and then for the next couple of years, we had very abbreviated, you know, we didn't do that. And the people from other churches would call and say, I want to get my tickets. And we said, there are no tickets this year. We're not doing it. Because there's other churches are the ones that are coming, you know, most of them. <laughs> Where all these, you know, non-Christians showing up? There's all the other Christians that were showing up. Uh, and, and, and the results, and she pointed this out to me, the results, you know, all the people checking the cards, where were they? Well, one of them sitting back there, but she's the, she's the only one I could put my finger on that ever made it <laughs> that we kept, you know. I mean, it's, it's just, it's not nearly as, as, as fruitful as we'd like it to be, and we had something better, and we were transitioning into it, so, yeah. Well, one more, and then we're going to have to start wrapping up here. Uh, going from one to two to three, four, uh, what about the other eight? Um, is five, six, or seven, have you just found the intimacy not there, or what, what are your thoughts on One quick comment about that, because the more people you add, the more you water down the core characteristics of what can happen in the group. So just think about how much time it takes for each person person uh, to divide up the time so if you add two more people then you decrease the amount of interactive time it makes it more difficult for people to trust each other and get open and to the very characteristics so so we we do feel that four is the maximum size group uh, that you have three and four are the ideal and I size. Did a, I did a quint you know and it was okay it was, it was good you know five people instead of four and we, we got through it but I could tell a difference and if you go down to three, I can tell a difference. So four seems to be the hot spot right there. And so, you know, I have one group that uh, one of the guys moved. You know, we had a four, we had a great foursome, and he moved. And so now we're down to three, and we finished out with three, uh, but we missed that. You know, there there is something about the three or four together in my name. I'll be there in the midst, and he shows up, and it's just a powerful thing. So. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. The message you just heard was from the Global Discipleship Initiative track at the National Disciple Making Forum. Download their free PDF that summarizes how they teach people to do micro-discipleship groups, which are made of three or four people. Download it at discipleship.org global. That's discipleship.org global. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.